0: Principles of geo Abstract The basic premise of geobiochemistry is that life emerged on Earth where there were opportunities for catalysis to expedite the release of chemical energy in water, rock, organic systems. In this framework, life is a planetary response to the dilemma that cooling decreases the rate of abiotic processes to the point that chemical energy becomes trapped. Catalysis via metabolism releases the trapped energy, and life benefits by capturing some of the energy released. Out of necessity, biochemical processes have geochemical origins, and geobiochemistry asserts that these origins can be revealed by mapping reaction mechanisms on to deep time. We propose five principles that should help guide research in the emerging field of geo biochemistry introduction the venerable field of biogeochemistry has the goal of understanding how biology affects geochemistry the complementary emerging field of geobiochemistry aims to explain how geology affects biochemistry this is a post-genomic topic fueled by the huge supply of new data emerging from molecular biology and the efforts of geoscientists to incorporate molecular methods into their field, laboratory, and theoretical work. It benefits from efforts to predict the thermodynamic properties of organic compounds, including biomolecules, at all temperatures and pressures where life exists as well as from recent analytical advances that allow the characterization of lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, and other large biomolecules in geologic samples. Geobiochemistry also harbors a perspective from deep time that links biological evolution recorded in genes with geologic history recorded in rocks, as seen through the lens of evolutionary analyses. The tools are now in place to study how geologic processes affect biochemistry, both today and in Earth's past. Extraction of DNA and RNA from geological samples is increasingly routine, although fully exploiting the data locked in diverse sediment and rock compositions will require further analytical developments. Nevertheless, there are growing databases of gene sequences from complex soil, Sediment and rock samples that are ushering in an era of genomics and transcriptomics. Armed with these new data, researchers can explicitly link evolutionary relations, as well as changes in protein encoding genes and their transcripts, with the temperatures, pressures, and compositions of geochemical processes. Likewise, obtaining lipid extracts. From geological samples is increasingly common and recent developments indicate that massive amounts of lipid data may soon rival data from gene sequencing efforts. Given their long lifespans, once they reach the geologic record, lipids are rich stores of preserved information about how major developments in geologic processes are reflected in biochemistry and vice versa. Advances in mass spectrometry and in the identification of the genes involved in lipid biosynthesis are accelerating the rate by which links are forged between the distribution of lipids and taxonomic and functional information. This information will provide valuable new approaches to link geological change with major biological innovations in deep time. We can also anticipate making far greater use of the molecular transformations of lipids throughout diagenesis and use these transformations as tracers of geologic history subsequent to lipid burial. Substantial progress is also being made in linking stable isotope compositions to taxonomy and or metabolism in extant microorganisms to provide new constraints on the evolution of biogeochemical cycles. Lagging somewhat behind are methods to extract proteins from complex environmental matrices, which, when such methods become possible, will allow the development of new proteomic approaches to define far more intimate links between the dynamic changes of geochemical compositions and shifts in gene expression and metabolic activity. Owing to the progress made in the field of theoretical geochemistry, it is now possible to calculate the standard state thermodynamic properties of thousands of organic compounds, including proteins and other biomolecules. As a consequence, we can now estimate the energy required to make the biomolecules found in fluids of diverse geochemical compositions at temperatures and pressures where life is known to exist and beyond. This means that biomolecules and biochemical processes can be fully integrated into theoretical models of water-rock interactions, which allows tests of geo-biochemical hypotheses that are independent from observations of natural systems. Hydrothermal experiments, long used in the fossil fuel industry to study how organic compounds are transformed during geological processes, are now being used to answer outstanding questions in geo-biochemistry. Although still at an early stage, these efforts are revealing which reactions are reversible and which primarily undergo irreversible transformations during geological processes. The convergence of these streams of research makes it possible for geochemists, microbiologists, and biochemists to interact in previously unforeseen ways. As we witness the development of geobiochemistry as a new field of investigation, it is propitious to consider some general principles that can help guide hypothesis generation. The goal of this communication is to articulate five of these principles. By no means are these inclusive of all the possibilities that geobiochemistry offers, and they are certainly unable to articulate insights. That will become possible owing to new advances. Principle 1. Life emerges as a planetary response. If we are to work from the assumption that the biochemistry we have is one that the Earth allows, then we are also implicitly assuming that, alongside differentiation, mantle convection, volcanism, tectonics, metamorphism, hydrothermal alteration, weathering, and climate change. Life is a planetary process. Constructing evolutionary trees of life has blossomed over the past 30 years as part of the revolution in molecular biology. These trees suggest that the use of chemical energy preceded the use of light energy to drive metabolism. Life on Earth appears to have emerged in response to the flow of energy, through a water-rock organic system. Why is this the case? At the high temperatures and pressures of most magmatic, metamorphic, and hydrothermal processes, the approach to thermodynamic equilibrium is rapid enough that it is commonly attained. In these areas of research, measuring or predicting thermodynamic properties of substances and their solutions has afforded considerable experimental and theoretical progress. Modeling high-temperature pressure planetary processes by assuming thermodynamic equilibrium often proves useful for describing differences between initial and final states. Computational models also make it possible to delve into the details of how equilibrium occurs or to examine closely occasions where the underlying drive toward equilibrium is unrequited. At lower temperatures and pressures, the drive toward equilibrium persists, but the avenues for attaining equilibrium become increasingly convoluted. It is not uncommon for states of metastable equilibrium to develop if some reactions are reversible. But attainment of a truly stable equilibrium in low-temperature and pressure water-rock organic systems is rare. The problem is that the duration of planetary processes can be insufficient to attain equilibrium, owing to the sluggish rates of chemical reactions. As a result, many natural systems persist at stages of partial reaction progress between initial and final states. Models of low temperature and pressure processes are inherently complicated by kinetic rate laws, which account for the failure of natural systems to attain stable equilibrium due to disruptions in the flow of energy. Experimental and theoretical work is dominated by testing reaction mechanisms to account for these rate laws with the hope of developing predictive methods. When reactions that are thermodynamically favorable meet profound mechanistic or kinetic barriers, catalysis emerges as a major factor in determining what actually happens. In essence, life is a collection of complex adaptive catalysts tuned to energy supplies, but persist unexpended, owing to abiotic complications that inhibit reaction progress. Without these abiotic mechanistic difficulties, life would not be possible. It follows that life is, quote, allowed by the mechanistic complications of low-temperature geochemistry, and life owes its existence to inferences and hurdles in the relentless drive for the release of chemical energy. If life is generated as a planetary response to expediting the release of energy, then biochemistry is the manifestation of how catalysis is accomplished. Familiar biochemistry emerged in large part to dissipate Earth's energy, which would otherwise be tied up due to mechanistic or kinetic inhibitions. The extent to which biochemistry on another world, exobiochemistry, might be familiar, depends on whether the same mechanistic complications to abiotic chemical energy dissipation exist. The ranges of compositional variability inferred by the ongoing search for exoplanets suggests that the diverse and potentially unfamiliar planetary processes are possible. How chemical energy dissipation is thwarted in these processes may differ from the way energy is dissipated on Earth. It is expected that exo-biochemistry will differ accordingly. Geo-biochemistry offers the potential of predicting these differences. Principle 2 Biochemical processes have geochemical origins. Biochemical processes emerged within a system of existing abiotic geochemical processes. It is a theme of geobiochemical research. The processes can be traced through the transitions from geochemistry to biochemistry. Furthermore, ongoing research will eventually reveal how such transitions occurred. As an example, mixing of hydrothermal fluids and seawater at submarine hydrothermal systems can create geochemical conditions that favor the synthesis of the aggregate biological monomers that compose biomolecules. The thermodynamic drives of systems hosted in both peridotite and basalt are such that biosynthesis releases energy available in the seawater hydrothermal fluid mixture. The fact that a geochemical consequence of an unavoidable geologic process of fluid mixing is to generate conditions where biosynthesis is thermodynamically favored is often cited as supporting evidence for geochemical explanations for the emergence of life. It also reminds us that conditions in other parts of the Earth differ radically from conditions required by humans and that assumptions based on Earth's surface conditions, including the pervasive notion that there are always energetic costs to biosynthesis, should be avoided. The tricarboxylic acid cycle also termed the citric acid cycle, or Krebs cycle, consists of a series of enzyme-directed chemical reactions that involve a handful of C4, C5, and C6 organic acid anions. This cycle plays a central role in the metabolism of many microorganisms. The citric acid cycle is described as proceeding forward when it operates in a direction familiar from introductory biology courses, i.e., when citrate is progressively altered through several steps to ultimately generate oxaloacetate and then regenerate it again when oxaloacetate and acetate combine to form citrate. The function of the forward citric acid cycle is to convert organic compounds into CO2 and H2O and capture the energy released, as well as to provide intermediates for the biosynthesis of amino acids and other compounds. The cycle is thought of as operating in reverse when CO2 and H2O are combined into organic compounds, starting with oxaloacetate and ultimately yielding citrate, which allows, which then reacts to form acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetate. So allowing the cycle to continue. The reversibility of reactions in the citric acid cycle is heavily managed by enzymes. And it is that very reversibility that makes the citric acid cycle such a versatile system of reactions for energy production or biosynthesis, depending on the needs of various types of organisms. As described in box 1, the citric acid cycle consists of hydro, hydrogen slash dehydrogenation hydration-slash-dehydration, and coupled Redox-carboxylation-decarboxylation reactions. Hydrothermal experiments show that many of the underlying fundamental reactions are also reversible at high temperatures and pressures. As shown in Figure 1b, analogous hydrogenation-slash-dehydrogenation reactions between ketones and alcohols, as well as between alkenes and alkanes, and hydration-slash-dehydration reactions between alcohols and alkenes are central to the reversible hydrothermal transformation reactions that link ketones, alcohols, alkenes, and alkanes. Evidence from natural systems supports the involvement of these reversible reactions in establishing metastable equilibria among organic compounds in sedimentary basins and hydrothermal systems. Evidently, The reversibility, inherent to the usefulness of the citric acid cycle, is a normal feature of aqueous organic reactions at high temperatures and pressures. This leads us to the hypothesis that the occurrence of the citric acid cycle is a geobiochemical fossil. In effect, the role of the enzymes in managing and expediting the steps of the cycle is like heating these compounds to the temperatures and pressures where these reversible reactions happen rapidly. Perhaps the citric acid cycle results from life taking advantage of organic reaction mechanisms that are all already in place, but that are slow to operate at lower temperatures and pressures. Principle 3. Enzymatic processes recapitulate mineral catalysis. Similarities in the structure and reactivity of metal-bearing minerals and of the metal clusters that form the active sites of metalloenzymes has led to the hypothesis that the metal centers in many enzyme cofactors are vestiges of mineral catalysts. These similarities are particularly pronounced when iron-sulfur minerals and enzymes are compared. For example, the common iron-sulfur minerals pyrite and pyrite participate in numerous redox reactions, including those involving hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide reactions, which are considered by many to have been integral to the origin of life. Similarly, the iron-sulfur enzymes, hydrogenase, nitrogenase, and carbon monoxide dehydrogenase catalyze interconversions of hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, respectively, with the key redox reactions occurring at the active site iron-sulfur metal clusters of each enzyme. The reactions catalyzed by iron sulfur minerals and the fact that these minerals are similar in structure and reactivity to many iron sulfur metal clusters and enzymes have compelled many to think that iron sulfur minerals have played a central role in the origin of life. Key unanswered questions include how such mineral-based reactivity was emulated by primitive proteins, what the selective pressures were that led to these events, and when and where these events might have taken place. Clues to answering these questions may be obtained by comparing and contrasting 1. abiotic and biotic catalysis, and 2. mineral structures in the active site metal clusters of modern-day enzymes. The near-universal occurrence of iron-sulfur enzymes in the three domains of life and the fact that these enzymes play a central role in a variety of ancient biogeochemical processes strongly suggests that they were present in the last common ancestor of archaea and bacteria. It then follows that simple iron-sulfur clusters, such as those illustrated in Figure 2a, may have been synthesized for use by biology early in life's history, perhaps prior to 3.8 billion years ago, through what could be described as a form of convergent mineralogical and biological evolution. If true, this would imply that the earliest forms of life, those that predate the last common ancestor, may have lived vicariously through reactions catalyzed by metal-bearing minerals in their local environment and evolved proteins capable of ligating metal clusters derived from solubilized minerals. What was the selective pressure that drove the integration of these metal clusters into enzymes? One potential explanation is that conversions of inorganic nutrients into organic forms capable of supporting early life by abiotic, mineral-based mechanisms were accompanied by mechanistic or kinetic barriers that may have limited the flux of substrates available to support life. Thus, in addition to focusing the reactivity and specificity of certain functions, the impetus to integrate metal clusters into biology may have been to lower the activation barriers of these reactions through the evolution of protein catalysts, which had the added benefits of releasing life from dependency on mineral surfaces and allowing diversification into new environment types. As life diversified into oxic environments, how was it able to cope with the decreased availability of metals? Insights into this question may come from the organic compounds that tune the redox properties of iron sulfur clusters and enzymes, including the carbon monoxide and cyanide ligands on the iron nitrogen hydrogenase active site cluster and the homocitrate ligand in the active site iron molybdenum cofactor of molybdenum nitrogenase. Today, the low solubility of some minerals in many types of environments, and the limitations that this places on their use by biology, is often overcome by chelators that have large equilibrium constants for metal complexation. Early life may have utilized similar, albeit less highly evolved, approaches to acquire metals to meet its biosynthetic needs. The low solubility of some minerals that contain nickel or molybdenum may have been overcome through chelation by simple compounds, such as carbon monoxide or cyanide, or by organic acids, such as homocitrate. Thus, the cyanide and carbon monoxide and homocitrate ligands present in the active sites of iron-sulfur clusters of the nitrogen-iron hydrogenase and molybdenum nitrogenase, respectively, may be relics of the early need to increase the solubility of these metals for use in the biosynthesis of these enzymes' active sites. The parallels in the structure and reactivity of minerals and enzyme metal clusters, as explored above, can be extended to other rock types, in particular those rich in ferrous iron Reduction of water to hydrogen occurs during serpentinization by oxidation of the ferrous iron component of mafic and ultramafic rocks. And the reaction of hydrogen with the carbon dioxide that is dissolved in the ocean and hydrothermal systems favors the synthesis of reduced carbon compounds such as formate and methane. Biology has evolved, perhaps again mimicking abiotic mineral catalysis. A suite of hydrogenase enzymes with active sites comprising iron or iron and nickel that are involved in interconversion of hydrogen and protons. It seems probable that the iron that the nickel iron hydrogenase first evolved in an ancestor to the hydrogen dependent methanogens, which used the primitive reductive acetyl coA pathway for both ATP generation and carbon dioxide fixation. The reductive acetyl-CoA pathway is the only core CO2 fixation pathway present in both archaea and bacteria, suggesting that it originated early in the evolution of life. In this pathway, electrons from the oxidation of hydrogen are sequentially transferred to CO2, which in methanogens ultimately forms methane the reductive acetyl-CoA reaction pathway is chemically similar to that associated with abiotic synthesis reactions that accompany serpentinization, namely, the initial reduction of CO2 to formate-slash-carbon monoxide, followed by further reduction to methane. Thus, in addition to evolving enzymes that may recapitulate mineral-based catalysis, biology may have also evolved metabolic pathways that emulate abiotic reaction pathways. Principle 4. Biological innovations occur near to where first needed. Evolutionary analyses of taxonomic genes in the context of the environment from which those organisms were recovered reveals that early branches in the archaeal and bacterial taxonomic domains are represented by organisms that inhabit high-temperature environments. These This indicates that life may have its evolutionary roots in a high-temperature environment. What characteristics of such environments would be favorable for the origin of life, and what metabolisms might have sustained this life? Many origin-of-life researchers prefer to think about early life as being fermentative, essentially to overcome the problem of limited availability of oxidants capable of supporting respiration. However, this primitive fermentative life would be dependent on abiotic sources of fixed carbon, which may have not been sufficient in supply or of appropriate composition to meet the needs of primitive biosynthetic pathways. The appeal of hydrogen-dependent organisms operating the reductive acetyl-CoA pathways is that they only require CO2 as a carbon source slash oxidant and hydrogen as reductant both of which are presumed to have been abundant in certain settings on early Earth, such as in hydrothermal systems. Methanogens, which are commonplace in many hydrothermal vent environments, use the reductive acetyl-CoA pathway to generate energy in the form of ATP, at the expense of reducing CO2, in essence grabbing a free lunch that the organisms are paid to eat. Thus, primitive methanogens, operating the reductive acetyl-CoA pathway, overcome organic carbon limitation, and at the same time generate ATP for metabolic purposes. To this end, life and autotrophic pathways appear to have evolved where they were first needed, and most favorable, perhaps in high-temperature hydrothermal settings. There is a growing interest among geobiologists in defining the environmental conditions that promoted the evolutionary innovations that in turn influenced the diversification of life. For example, evolutionary analysis indicates that the enzymatic machinery involved in the detoxification of mercury ions has its evolutionary roots in high-temperature, volcanically heated, hydrothermal environments. To the ore geologist, this observation is perhaps not surprising. Hydrothermal fluids can be enriched in mercury and, over geological time, concentrate mercury into economically important ore deposits. Thus, the enzyme responsible for the biological detoxification of mercury, the most toxic metal to biology, because of its high affinity for sulfhydryl groups present in proteins, appears to have evolved where it was first needed hydrothermal environments where elevated concentrations of mercury naturally occur. Molybdenum nitrogenase catalyzes the reduction of dinitrogen to ammonia and also appears to have evolved where it was first needed. The molybdenum nitrogenase has modulated the availability of ammonium in the biosphere since early Earth's history. Today, the availability of ammonia often limits ecosystem productivity, which is overcome by the widespread application of industrially produced fertilizers. The metabolic costs associated with fixing nitrogen may lead one to imagine an origin for this process in an ammonia-limited organism operating a high-energy-yielding reaction, such as photosynthesis or respiration, using oxygen. However, evolutionary analysis... Of the molybdenum nitrogenase reveals that the earliest evolving organisms, those which branch at the base of the tree, were hydrogen-dependent and thermophilic methanogens. Because methanogens are poised by oxygen, are poisoned by oxygen rather, meaning that they are strict anaerobes, this finding implies an origin of the molybdenum nitrogenase in a high temperature anoxic environment, which is consistent with the prevalence of the molybdenum nitrogenase from anaerobic organisms that branch closer to the base of the tree than aerobic organisms. Energetically, hydrogen-dependent methanogenesis is one of the lowest energy-yielding reactions capable of sustaining life, with the energetic yield being highly dependent on temperature as well as in the activities of hydrogen, CO2, and CH4 in the local environment. For these reactions, it seems contradictory that selective pressure to evolve the energy-intensive process of nitrogen fixation would act on an ancestor of hydrogen-dependent methanogens, leading to the emergence of this enzymatic machinery. Three possible explanations are proposed to resolve this paradox. The first explanation considers the limitation of ammonia. Methanogens living near hydrothermal vents may have had ample supplies of fixed ammonia, created through cooling and re-equilibration of volcanic gases and mineral-based catalysis. However, the flux of ammonia would have been finite, and as biology became more productive, ammonia may have become limiting and provided the selective pressure to evolve this enzyme complex. The second explanation draws on Darwinian selection to act on functional variants within a population, thereby allowing diversification to take place over time. The evolutionary precursor, or ancestor, of the molybdenum nitrogenase is a set of proteins that are likely involved in cofactor F430 biosynthesis. This cofactor and its biosynthetic pathway are only known to be present in methanogens and several recently evolved bacterial taxa. From this perspective, it would be surprising if molybdenum nitrogenase evolved in any organism other than in the ancestor of the methanogens. The third explanation hinges on the reduction of the inert nitrogen nitrogen triple bond in dinitrogen, having a high activation energy. At low temperatures without catalysts, this activation energy favors preservation of the reactant at increased temperatures, those over 150 degrees Celsius. This activation energy is lowered, which would allow the reaction to proceed if not for the accompanying temperature-dependent shift in the equilibrium position of the reaction towards the reactant. The Haber-Busch The process of industrial nitrogen fixation overcomes the high activation energy for nitrogen reduction by increasing the temperature while at the same time running the reaction at elevated pressure, at high reactant concentrations, and in the presence of iron-based catalysts in order to keep the equilibrium position, favoring product formation. Intriguingly, at biologically relevant temperatures, those under 121 degrees Celsius, and in the presence of elevated pressure and high concentrations of reactants, the equilibrium for the reaction should also permit product formation if appropriate catalysts, for example, iron-sulfur compounds, are available. Indeed, abiotic experiments in the presence of iron-sulfur minerals under conditions similar to those present at hydrothermal vents were shown to promote reduction of of nitrogen to ammonium, albeit with meager yields. Such conditions may have provided the impetus for hydrogen-dependent methanogen to evolve an efficient and primitive nitrogenase with an iron-sulfur-containing active site by which to overcome the activation barrier for dinitrogen reduction and to push the reaction toward product formation and relieve ammonia limitation. Selection and refinement of this enzyme complex over evolutionary time would have further improved its catalytic efficiency to the point where organisms with this functional capacity could diversify into lower temperature and lower pressure environments. Principle five Things that burst into flame are not good to eat. This statement, originally by Melanie Holland, personal communication, appears among these principles of geobiochemistry to help frame explanations for natural distributions of microbial metabolisms and biochemical strategies. If a reaction can proceed abiotically, at a rapid rate, there is no need for catalysis, and no option for that reaction to supply energy in support of microbial metabolism. Rates typically increase with increasing temperature, which is why one of the limits of the biosphere is assumed to be at high temperatures. If a reaction reaches equilibrium faster than microbes can intervene to take advantage of it, that reaction cannot support life. Reaction rates constrain habitability and depend on numerous compositional factors. Those especially relevant to energy supplies are the abundances of electron acceptors and donors, which depend on reactions that are governed by geochemical processes involving mineral dissolution or precipitation, gas transfer into or out of aqueous solution, adsorption-slash-desorption, and organic transformations. Sources of solutes may be proximal to microbial habitats or distantly removed, with transport pathways triggering the emergence of energy supplies. As energy supplies become available, abrupt transitions appear within habitats that indicate the appearance of life. With metabolic strategies to take advantage of this energy. Each of these transitions can be studied from a geobiochemical perspective to determine how geochemical changes drive biochemical responses. These then can become case studies of how geology shapes biochemistry, ultimately leading to a new set of geobiochemical principles that can enhance the five proposed here. Let's take for as an example the element sulfur. Because its various forms are well-integrated into metabolism, and apparently have been since early in Earth's history, transitions in the utilization, or lack thereof, of specific forms of sulfur are often not evident to the naked eye, but can be determined by integrating geobiochemical methods and perspectives. As our example, we focus on the biological utilization of elemental sulfur, and how abiotic reaction kinetics involving numerous intermediate sulfur compounds potentially influence the distribution of microbial metabolisms. In circumneutral to slightly acidic environments, sulfur-reducing microorganisms are thought to reduce polysulfide, which is a soluble form of elemental sulfur, produced through reaction of insoluble sulfur by sulfide. However, in acidic environments, pH less than 6. Polysulfide molecules are unstable and rapidly hydrolyzed to produce sulfide and soluble elemental sulfur rings, thereby placing constraints on utilization of of polysulfide by acidophiles, which are organisms that preferentially grow in acidic environments. Further complicating its use by biology... Elemental sulfur rings rapidly aggregate, due to hydrophobic attraction, to produce sulfur nanoparticles of decreasing solubility. The rate of coarsening is inversely related to the pH of the aqueous solvent. Sulfur-reducing organisms, which tend to be enriched in many acidic volcanic environments, apparently overcome these kinetic limitations by increasing the solubility of elemental sulfur by driving the reverse of reaction 2 through the production of hydrogen sulfide conclusions. Decades of interest in the merging of disciplines and the development of multidisciplinary research strategies to address societally relevant geoscience problems have resulted in substantial outcomes in terms of research, and educational goals. However, these strategies have largely been in the form of binary fusions of concepts, biology and chemistry to form biochemistry, chemistry and geology to form geochemistry, or geology and biology to form geobiology. The emerging field of geobiochemistry seeks to stimulate new conversations and to forge new research and educational strategies through integration of concepts borrowed from geology, chemistry, and biology in a ternary strategy that differs from biogeochemistry by placing emphasis on the influence of geological and chemical processes on biological processes. In doing so, geobiochemists will further erode traditional boundaries in teaching and research and accelerate new technological and intellectual advances in the geosciences. Acknowledging that the principles of geobiochemistry, as outlined above, are not all-encompassing, it is our hope that they will illustrate the breadth of new possibilities in this field as it advances to meet the myriad challenges and societally demanding questions confronting 21st century geoscientists.